Recently, when I've guest blogged in various places, one of the main topics I've found myself discussing are matters around truth and truthfulness. For example, I've raised a number of times my concerns and those of others around the practice of the campaigning group Christian Concern, finding them to be less than transparent in their press releases regarding the legal cases they support. The prison worker who was banned from preaching at the prison chapel turns out to be someone who repeatedly broke simple rules and then ignored a major safeguarding guideline. A social work student, Felix Ngole, is portrayed as a victim of anti-Christian bias, but as the court judgment notes, the repeated efforts of the social work department of Sheffield University to keep him on the course by helping him address and reflect on how his social media profile impacts upon his professional persona, a thing that lots of us should, should ponder, was rejected by him. Whilst I wonder whether the academics would have been so rigorous in engaging with a social work student who blasted, I quote, infantile minds who believe in sky fairies, close quote, the point still stands that the university almost bent over backwards to keep Ngoli on board, and it appears that ultimately his decision to refuse to engage with the university at all on this led to his removal from the course. Being truthful is at the heart of the current crisis in safeguarding, not just in the Church of England, but in wider Western society. The complex web of emotions and reactions that someone abused experiences goes some way to explain the simple question of why those abused don't report the abuse even years later. For some it is fear, for others shame, for others depression. Whatever the reason, getting over the first hurdle of truth is an important step and this is why, when something is disclosed, it is the duty of all those in the Church of England, lay or ordained, to report it to the appropriate authority not least to protect themselves against the accusation of covering things up. Of course, there is a valid question to be asked about the sanctity of the seal of confession, and many priests like myself would argue that there are limited, specific sacramental moments in our ministry when the prime importance is simply the eternal state of the soul sat in front of us. That said, in the huge, overwhelming cases of disclosure, and certainly 100% of the time for any layperson, any report of abuse of any kind should be reported immediately. At this point, however, the boundaries of truth and transparency then become incredibly blurred. While insisting on openness at the start of the safeguarding process, far too often then a veil of protection and confidentiality then falls across the rest of the process. We move from encouraging telling all to insisting on telling nothing. People, sometimes falsely accused, are suspended from their jobs and told not to tell anyone why. Evidence is not shared, and challenges to the process, for example in the case of the long-deceased Bishop George Bell, are dismissed and, somewhere along the line, the presumption of innocence can get tangled up in the protection of the victim. Finding the balance between the two can be a delicate matter, and I've heard a number of horror stories of the way clergy who have been falsely accused of abuse have been practically dumped by the diocese, who had excellent processes in place to look after those accusing, but precious little support for those accused. This isn't the case everywhere, but it happens enough for us to know it is a problem. And when diocesan safeguarding policy after diocesan safeguarding policy has pages and pages on how to look after the victim and two sentences on pastoral care for the accused, one wonders whether sometimes the process is leaning too much in one way. The issue of telling the truth is especially important in the public narrative around reporting abuse accusations. 
In a world of spin, it's important to note that not telling the whole truth can be as deceitful as telling an outright lie. As I noted earlier, some Christian campaigning groups can be guilty of this, and it's also a real danger when victims go public. There is a huge difference between a dispassionate police investigation which, whilst doing everything to look after the victim, explores every avenue of a story to try and build up a big picture in order to do proper justice. And an hour-long radio interview condensed into five short minutes gives just one side of the tale. Look, let me give you an entirely hypothetical example to make my point. Let's say that tomorrow I do an interview with a Christian magazine and in it I accuse a leading gay activist in the church of abusing me 20 years ago. I hope you'd be sympathetic to my cause and if you weren't you're clearly heartless. Let's say I also tell you that I went to my archdeacon last week to tell her and she said to me that I should drop it. I hope you'd be horrified and demanding to know how this senior priest can be so disregarding of the formal safeguarding processes when I've told her that I've been raped. All good so far? Now let me tell you a few secrets about this case and this is all I still point out very hypothetical. Here's the first thing that I didn't tell you in the interview, and that was that a year ago I reported this to the police, and after a proper investigation they told me there wasn't even vaguely enough evidence for a rape prosecution. Has your opinion of the matter changed yet? Now, some more truth about myself in this alternative hypothetical universe. I didn't tell you that 20 years ago when this rape happened, I was known for throwing myself at men and having some rather inappropriate boundaries. Once again, does your opinion of my story change? Now let's throw one more fact into the story. I told you the truth about my visit to, to my archdeacon, but actually, when she said to me, drop it, that was just part of a longer response. What she actually said to me, after I told her all of the above, including the stuff that I didn't tell you originally, was, Peter, I've known you for many years and you're a good friend of mine. I don't doubt you for a moment that something horrible happened, but I'm going to be honest with you, I don't think, given what the police report says, that a safeguarding inquiry is going to go any differently. If you choose to make a safeguarding com complaint against this person, I will support you 100% and back you all the way. Despite this, I have to ask you to consider for the sake of your emotional health and the lack of the likelihood of the outcome you want, whether the best course of action is actually not to put yourself through this pain, but rather just to drop it, however hard that seems at the moment. Now, given those three extra bits of truth, do you have a different opinion of me now? Do you have perhaps a different opinion of the Archdeacon? Can you see perhaps why I don't want you to know who the Archdeacon is? Not so much because she's a friend and I want to protect her, but because if she tells the truth about what happens, it paints a different story. It's not so much that I didn't tell the truth in, the, in this hypothetical interview with the magazine, it's that I didn't tell you the whole truth, and in doing so gave a different impression of what actually happened. No wonder when witnesses in the court of law take the stand, they promise to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Without all of this, it's sometimes hard to get to the core of the reality of the situation. This need for truth-telling and our human instinct born out of our fallen sinful nature and the desire often to twist events to suit our own status and narrative and purposes permeates every part of our lives. 
I've just come back from an internal company conference where, as well as winning one of my firm's most important internal awards, and did you see how I slipped that in there just to soothe my own latent narcissism, I also participated in a discussion on how to be truthful in our working lives and in particular as we interact with clients. In an environment where the larger the sale, the greater the commission, sometimes the temptation is to be less than honest with a client about what is the best product for them. If all the client needs is the half million dollar piece of software, but the one million dollar version will take me over my personal annual sales target, I once again can see how not lying is not the same as telling the whole truth. Is it more important for my integrity and my relationship with my client that I tell them not just the truth that software B is going to do everything that they need with all the bells and whistles on and it'll cost them a million dollars, but also that if they're on a tight budget, that actually software A for half the price will do everything they need. I can measure the outcome for me for getting them to buy the more expensive piece of software in monetary terms. But the benefit for me of them buying the cheaper but still suitable piece of software that's half the price is less tangible, but arguably more powerful. When I wrote my Oxford dissertation on truth and deceit, mainly because this grey boundary is something I have struggled with for many years and I wanted to process it theologically, I spent some time with the Bruderhof community in Kent. The Bruderhof, a Mennonite community stretched across the world, who have been through Nazi persecution, a cultic authoritarian stage in the 50s and 60s, and are now passionate about promoting peace amongst Christians and beyond. The Bruderhof have a rule of community where you are not allowed to talk about someone in the community unless they are present. This means that if you want to gossip or complain, you need to do it face to face. This rule of community is designed to protect relationships rather than break them and to walk together the painful path that truth sometimes takes us. When we can only accuse in the presence of the accused, we accept that the full story is also likely to be revealed. Such an approach challenges our narcissism, our sociopathism, but leads us into the truthful life of the Trinity, where one God is three persons who know each other completely openly and transparently. Within that triune community, the expansion of the circle of truth to include the church was only done at great cost and pain. And this is of all the things that we've explored today, the greatest insight into the power of truth. Truth is ultimately very painful. Like the therapy who strips apart their life with the therapist, like a chef peels layer after layer of an onion, to get to the reality of events and the real healing that is needed in a sinful world, sometimes we need to address our own shortcomings, personally and corporately, in the telling of truth, even when we are truly victims. But then, in a broken world where we are all a mess of sin and sinned upon and a mix of those two, and sometimes it's so complicated to separate the two apart, it is the recognition of the truth of that and how it permeates every aspect of our lives that is arguably one of the greatest points of growth we can ever experience. I'm Peter Old, and this is Radio Free Canterbury. Come back again